thank you for joining Victims to Victorious on the Black Talk Radio Network. I want to thank my sound engineer, Scotty Reed, who's actually the founder of the Black Talk Media Project. Um, if you are just now listening to us for the first time, on Victims to Victorious, what we do every week is we take a look at the public health interaction with the pandemic of gun violence. And today I say that gun violence is a pandemic because all over the world as we speak, of course, there are there are shootings and violent killings. But in America in particular, and in certain cities specifically, like Chicago, Illinois, right now there are there is a pandemic from coronavirus and a pandemic of shootings. Today's show is called Deadly Force in a Deadly Pandemic. We're actually going to take a look at some police shootings. I know there's much talk and much trending on Twitter about George Floyd. And recently, um, there is a lot of talk about a deadly killing in Atlanta. We're going to discuss that. And we're going to discuss the deadly, deadly force used um, and what are some of the conditions. So what does lethal force mean? We'd like to define things. If you want to see some of my links, you can send me uh, a direct message on Twitter. I do answer my direct messages on Air Angel. Deadly force is defined as any force that is reasonably likely to cause death and non-deadly force on any use of force other than that which is deadly force. That's a definition from the Internet. What are the eight preconditions of deadly force? Now, of course, these are going to vary by uh, state to state. Inherent right of defense, defense of others, assets vital to national security, inherent dangerous property, national critical interest structure, self-offenses against persons, escape, arrest, or apprehension. So I'm going to give another definition because one of the ways that you solve a problem is you know exactly what you're talking about. Now, many police jurisdictions do use tasers and they do use pepper spray. But believe it or not, people have died from pepper spray. People have died from being tasered. Even there are some policemen who have gone through a training academy and they often are taught to spray or to be sprayed by the trainer and some of them have um, died during training. So we're looking at deadly force and the definitions so that those of you who are marching for black like me, those of you who are interested in police reform, when you get yourself on an advisory board or when you're on Twitter, one of the things I want you to ask for is the reduction in the use of deadly force and the disarmament of the police department. Um, many police departments around the world, we've spoken about this previously, do not carry weapons on their person. They have to go and get them when a situation has become dangerous for others. And they have a different standard in places like Finland and even Great Britain still has a different standard. So the deadly force, I'm also going to give a law definition more of a legal definition. Deadly force is defined legally also as using a weapon to subdue a perpetrator, the firing of a gun in a vehicle in order to get the perpetrator to stop. Deadly force statutes 
These are written by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Of course, that's part of the Department of Justice. So another another activism um, action, if you will, if you're out here in Black Lives Matter, if you are a volunteer, if you're a citizen who's just concerned, I'm trying to familiarize you with what deadly force is, and then maybe after listening to my show or feeling empowered, you can go on the Department of Justice website because the Department of Justice actually gives out grants. So many of these police departments are funded, most of these police departments are in fact funded by the FBI or the Department of Justice. And now there are more grants that are geared to community members and citizens and other stakeholders. You could possibly write something to help change the police practicing the police policing in your neighborhood, and that's been um, one of that's been one of our themes for the last couple of weeks too, the way that the police are policing. So, according to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI has a statute of deadly force that defines when all law enforcement agents across the United States cannot use deadly force. Law enforcement agents cannot use deadly force based on the offender's nationality race, gender, religion, or any other discriminatory factor. My pause was purposeful. Our complaint as black and brown people is that they use deadly force on us because of our race and for some of our Latino brothers and sisters and even a few of the African immigrants who have been shot by the police. They are in fact using it um, based on nationality and race. And we can make an argument that they're using it against gender because they're more male shot by the police. Self-defense is their immediate danger to the officer by or bystanders. So these are the ways it can be used to stop an offender from using explosives that puts others' lives in danger, subduing an offender who has nuclear weapons or nuclear explosive devices. Listen to how high that standard is to prevent theft, sabotage, or control of a site that contains nuclear material. None of these young men uh, had nuclear material. During apprehension, if the suspect is posing a threat to the officer or bystanders. And that is the one that the white racist policemen seem to abuse, and even some of the black policemen. And this, again, is the de definition of deadly force as a statute enacted by the Department of Justice and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So during an apprehension of the suspect is posing a threat to the officers or bystanders. Now, if that law doesn't change, then maybe enforcement and interpretation of the law can change. If you get into a fight with, a physical fight with a policeman, why then uh, does he have to turn around and use or turn towards you and use a gun when he should have a taser by now or pepper, or pepper spray. Now I'm going to read what happened to uh, Rayshard Brooks. And this article comes from, this is actually a CBS News feed. Hopefully now the sound will bleed into the show. An Atlanta police officer was fired early Sunday following the fatal shooting of a black man which triggered unrest and new waves of protest in the city. Rayshard Brooks, 27, was fatally shot by police at a Wendy's drive-thru after officials say he resisted arrest and stole an officer's taser. An autopsy found that Brooks suffered two shot gunshot wounds 
to his back and died of organ injuries and blood loss, the Fulton County Medical Examiner said on Sunday. The manner of death was listed as a homicide. And this is very important because when someone is, when this is listed as a homicide, this means that a person has died at the hands of another. Now, we're talking about Atlanta and down south and the whole social historic context of the Klan and the Confederate soldiers and even the black soldiers who fight uh, in the Union Army. There's a famous story that the whites, uh, when they are caught by the Confederate soldiers, the Confederate sh soldiers um, kill all the black soldiers and take the white ones prisoner. So people south of the Basin Dixon line have been dealing with um, an enhanced historical racism. It doesn't mean it's not institutionalized. But those of us who grew up north of the Mason-Dixon line, um, we only know some of these stories from people who were born down south. So the, the racist overt aggression was less up here by many, in many ways. But Indiana, of course, was north of the Mason-Dixon line. Um, it's a state with the largest number of lynchings. But there is a we, we can't overlook the fact that the plantation slavery has colored current inter, intercultural relationships and interclass relationships with the police and the people they are policing, especially when they are descendants of slaves and the white, the white policemen are descendants of Confederate soldiers, they're descendants of plantation managers, plantation owners, et cetera. And even if they aren't, they benefit from the racism in the system. So I'm just trying to explain that more to people. So going back to the story, because we always like to look at Victims to Victorious on how something has unfolded and the background. Police say Brooks fell asleep in the Wendy's drive-thru on Friday night and had failed a sobriety test. When police tried to take him into custody, Brooks resisted and stole his taser from an officer, they said. Brooks ran from the officer and at one point aimed the taser at police before the officer fired, fired his weapon. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation said, citing surveillance video that was released to the public. While there may be a debate as to whether this was an appropriate use of deadly force, I believe that there is a clear distinction between what you can do and what you should do, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottom said in a news conference. I do not believe that this was a justified use of deadly force. Brooks was taken to a local hospital where he died after surgery, officials said. One officer was treated for injury and discharged from the hospital. Al Chris Stewart, an attorney for Brooks' family, said the officer who killed Brooks should face charges. Black, white, Hispanic, whatever you are, Stewart said in a news conference, are you not tired of seeing these cases, cases like this happen? Brooks' eldest daughter turned eight years old the day after his death. His family said he planned on taking her skating on Saturday, but he never returned home. She had her birthday dress on. She was waiting for her dad to come pick her up and take her skating, Smith said. Brooks has three daughters, one, two, eight, and a 13-year-old stepson, Tamika Miller, who was married to Brooks for eight years, said she dropped to her knees when she heard the news. It was murder. That was not justified, Miller told CBS. He was shot running away. He wasn't dangerous. He wasn't coming at them in any kind of way to where they felt a threat. They shouldn't have felt threatened. And I want to go back to what the Fulton uh, County Medical Examiner said. The Fulton County Medical Examiner 
and of course that's the county um, that Atlanta is in, said that he died from a bullet um, in his back. I'll read that again. An autopsy found that Brooks suffered two gunshot wounds, that's two, to his back, and he died of organ injuries and blood loss. Blood loss. So immediately you see a contradiction in the policeman's story. They aimed the taser at him, and then that's when he shot. Now, we, he maybe did turn around, but if the perpetrator has your taser and you have a weapon, first of all, you, the taser, he has to be a certain distance from you. So what I'm advocating for here is I packed this article about the reduction in the use of deadly force. Most policemen who are shot to death at work are shot to death by another white man. And the FBI has those statistics. Most white men who die from a gunshot wound, it is self-inflicted. So the perception and the reality are at odds here of what is true and what is real. So the police are obviously going to say, that Richard was not unarmed because he managed to get the policeman's tailor, uh, taser. Also, we have to ask ourselves another question. How is it that he got so close that he wrestled away from him? All their weapons are supposed to be holstered, okay? Um, that's another question I have. So if you're listening to the show and wondering what can be done, I'm asking people to advocate for better de-escalation skills from the police and a a last resort use of deadly weapons and get rid of the interpretation that we read from the FBI. And that is how many uh, policemen are justifying their shooting. During apprehension, if the suspect is posing a threat to the officer by bystanders, was he a threat? I'm reading some of them again. Was he a threat? But the firing of a gun uh, in order to get the perpetrator to stop inside of a vehicle. Just imagine if that policeman decided to fire into a vehicle at the drive-through. Now, if someone is asleep because they're drunk in the car and the car is parked, the laws differ. Some, some states are, if you are in the car and you are drunk and you have the keys somewhere. Uh, that's why some people know to take the keys from the person. But being asleep in the drive-through was certainly an annoyance for other people, but it really wasn't worth... Um, it wasn't worth the death. So the FBI says that deadly force cannot be used based on offenders' nationality, race, gender, or gender. And then it says any other discriminatory factor. My argument here for advocating for the changes, the discriminatory factor is always going to be black and male. It's always going to be a perception uh, of a black and male person. And then you add on the actual race the actual gender. Some Latino people are black and they get shot also by the police. And they are also caught up in the black on black crime numbers. Okay, that is race and ethnicity are not always the same. Race and ethnicity are not always the same. So the FBI's suggestion of when or the FBI statutes on using deadly force are so high and time and time again, we see the local police jurisdictions circumvent it, ignore it, justify the misuse or the misapplication. The FBI and U.S. Marshals, they get into far, far less shootouts, yet they arrest far more dangerous criminals. Something to think about. Returning to the um, 
returning to the article, we're talking about Rayshard, who was just shot a few days ago by a policeman in Atlanta because Rayshard Brooks was sleeping in the drive in a car in the drive-thru. Very sad note they have here about his daughter waiting uh, for him to take him to skating on her birthday. Returning to the comments from his wife, Miller never imagined she'd be in the same position as the family of George Floyd, a 46-year-old who died in the city in the custody of the Minneapolis police. I want them to go to jail, Miller said of the officers. I want them to deal with the same things as if my husband were killed by someone else. If it was my husband who shot them, he would be in jail. He would be doing a life sentence. And of course, if he killed them in many jurisdictions, uh, killing a law enforcement officer makes you death penalty eligible. Brooks' niece, Chastity Evans, remembered him in a news conference Monday. Not only was he a girl, was he a girl, was he a girl dad? Sorry, he was loving a loving husband, caring brother, mostly most important to me, an uncle I could depend on. Evans said, Rayshard Brooks was silly, had the brightest smile and the biggest heart and loved to dance since we were kids. Brooks' death ignited angry demonstrations in the city. Protesters on Sunday set fire to the Wendy's restaurant where Brooks was killed and shut down an interstate highway in both directions. At least 36 people were arrested, police said. The city of Atlanta was roiled by protests following Floyd's death. Six officers were charged with assault and four were fired after video showed police pulling two college students out of their car during a demonstration on May 30th. The officers used a stun gun on the driver and passenger. Footage of the incident was broadcast live by WGCL-TV. Mark Strasman contributed to this report. One of the one of the things that I think is very helpful for us is how many people are not too scared to film, to film these events as much as they are painful to watch in today's world of camera phones. And it's also good to see that once the police see the video, they are willing, the police, um, the police officials, the um, district attorneys, the county prosecutors, etc. Once they are able to see these, they are able to make a judgment, and then law enforcement of the police uh, killer as a perpetrator of homicide can begin. And that's another another hurdle for us. For so long, the police have been absolved of killing us. Okay, it has not been papered as a homicide. It has not been defined legally as a homicide. It has not been enforced as a homicide. So that Atlanta policeman and I, um, I'm going to decline to say his name in the same way that I noticed uh, other journalists decline to say the names of um, of mass shooters. So. I want to read a little bit more, another article about this, because I'd like to have more, um, more, uh, more points of views. So if you just tuned in, you're listening to Angel Fall. The title of today's 
WHO is deadly force in a deadly pandemic. The coronavirus is here to stay. People are still on various stages of lockdown. People have what used to be called cabin fever. After George Floyd, protests have broken out in the street. And we are looking at ways to change deadly force in a deadly pandemic. So here's another article on NBC News. Brooks struggled with the officers after they administered a field sobriety test and tried to take him into custody. Surveillance, surveillance shows, okay, I lost my feed here for a second. So the surveillance does show that he's struggling with the officers uh, after he failed the sobriety test. What we do know is that he grabbed a taser from one of them, and then he is shot in the back. The news gets out. It is filmed. It is posted. The Atlanta police officer whose gun was used was fired after killing Rayshard Brooks. So we want to know, as advocates, listeners, what is the public health response? to gunshot wounds. And are the police exempt? No, they are not. What I would like to see is the police not use deadly force unless the standard gets changed to something very, very high. If the perpetrator has a gun, and even then we look at situations where people, especially white men, are holed up in their homes with all kinds of weapons and the police get them to walk out. The police get them to walk out. So that, that article um, is not available right now. We're having, I'm having a little bit uh, technical difficulty. So now I want to look at police reforms because this is what we're talking about. In a pandemic, deadly force in a deadly pandemic, what, what ways can the police be reformed so that we are not looking at these deadly force incidents, so that we're not looking at um, harassment, so we're not looking at being beaten up in custody. Amnesty International takes a look at that also. So what does this have to do with public health? Well, it's very simple. There's a couple of things. Uh, in neighborhoods where there are high crimes and poverty, people don't have the same health care outcomes. Part of it is that they don't have access to good hospitals. A lot of inner city people complain that the ambulance takes longer. Um, other people in the inner city, and all these things have been recorded and noted. It's just not me um, spousing off. The access to health care, the inability to get to the hospital, the inability to get to the doctor. Um, a lot of researchers are studying in high crime areas the way female children don't get exercise outside because there are shootings, uh, because they are harassed by the police. So what's going on in Minneapolis since they started this whole can of worms this summer, they opened the can of worms, what things are they looking at so that they can reform their police department? And Atlanta, Atlanta's mayor said she wants to reform the police department. So let's take a look at some of the um, some of the ways that reform is happening. This article is from Michelle Phelps. 
police and police reforms in Minneapolis. Since the eruption of Black Lives Matters movement in 2014, police brutality, police violence, and police reform have emerged as central public policy concerns. Minneapolis has been at the center of these conversations. While our city is on the national forefront of progressing policing reforms, including body cameras, procedural justice, and implicit bias training, diversion programs, and more, the Minneapolis Police Department also faces steep criticism from activists and residents alike, especially in the wake of recent high-profile police killings of civilians, including Jamar Clark and Justin Damon. Thus, police reform and police legitimacy are pressing concerns in Minneapolis and nationwide. Again, this article is by Dr. Michelle Phelps. If you want to send, uh, want me to send you the article, you can direct message, message me at On Air Angel. You are listening to Victims to Victorious on Black Talk Radio. I'm Angel Fall. My sound engineer is Scotty Reed, who is the founder of the Black Talk Media Project. And you can follow both of us on Twitter and go to the Black Talk Media Project page to see how you can support us and what other uh, shows you might be interested in. In this project, the research team uses Minneapolis as a case study in the process of police reform, how p- can police rebuild trust with communities of color and in low-income low income communities? What roles do public officials, community organizations, and police reform advocates like Black Lives Matter, rep- representatives and others, play in changing police departments' policies, cultures and practices. As cities struggle to adopt the new media scrutiny on policing, understanding how citizens, activists, and policymakers interpret and shape police department practices is of critical importance. Now she's describing some of the ways she collects data. Interviews with Northside residents, interviews with advocates and activists, and ethnographic observations of policing events, and um, MPD, that stands for the Minneapolis Police Reform Effort. So I am going to focus on two two of her ways of collecting data. So, So some of you are listening to Victims to Victorious might find this too academic, but one of the criticisms of research in the past is that they have ju- it's just been ethnographic observations, which they do use. Now, what they mean is there are people who are observing events, um, recording events, collecting data, data and audio from the events. But if you interview the people in who are experiencing the crisis, the black people in these neighborhoods, this is not a coincidence that many of the black people who are shot in these all black neighborhoods are living in neighborhoods where black people are shooting each other. The violence is overlapping. So when you interview, when you do health research and sociological research, you really should interview the people who are experiencing the health event or the people who are at the most risk. Now that you might be saying, duh, but this has not always been the case. So here's why Dr. Phelps, or here's what she did. She interviewed North Side residents. North Minneapolis disproportionately experiences both high rates of crime and police contact. She says that absolutely perfectly. 
high rates of crime and police contact. If you live in a suburb without high rates of crime, you may go a whole year without calling 911. You may, uh, you may be calling the uh, police non-emergency number because somebody's dog got out or, or you, um, a car was parked overnight in your street or your condo has rules about no overnight parking without a permit. Those are the kinds of things that suburban police officers are dealing with. So North Minneapolis, again, experiences both high rates of crime and police contact as compared to the rest of the city. I'm reading, she wrote this first person. So if you hear me say we, I'm putting, I'm reading her words. Dr. Phelps completed over 120 interviews with residents in North Minneapolis, lasting from 30 to 90 minutes. These interviews start with a short survey, which uses standard measures of attitudes towards the police. And it continues with an open-ended quality, qualitative interview about participants' attitudes towards police. So I'm unpacking the word qualitative for some of you who are listening to this type of research for the first time. What that means is you're allowed to, at the end of the interview, she's allowed to open, she asks open-ended questions. For instance, she says, well, um, she may or may not reference your first part of the survey, but she's allowed to say, um, what do you really believe the police are interested in accomplishing in your neighborhood? Now, that could be an open-ended question. I haven't read her survey. I don't think she's published the survey quite yet. So the person answering who's from the neighborhood with the high crime rate may say an answer that allows them to understand the victims or the person's at risk point of view understand what is going wrong, give them insight into something they have already missed with the oh, with the close-ended questions. Do you like the police? Are the police racist? Do the police harass your sons when they go outside? Those would be the short close-end questions. So this is why this is important. You should also, if you are an advocate, um, contact researchers. Researchers are, are really interested in hearing from people. Contact her and see if she can put you in contact with other academics and other uh, people that are highly educated who wish to study this academically so they can influence, influence policy. So the interviews last 30 to 90 minutes. Uh, she measures the participants' attitudes toward the police, experiences with the police, knowledge of um, the Minneapolis Police Department's reforms, attitudes towards police reform, transformation, abolitionist groups and desire for future change. So what did she find? If you just tuned in, you're listening to Victims to Victorious. I'm Angel Fall and I'm talking about Dr. Phelps' research about the Minneapolis police and how they need major transformations. If you are listening and you are an advocate, if you are a protester, if you're a concerned citizen, I like to give you ways to contact people who can actually change the rules, influence policy. So um, one of, this is a, a small comment from her about some of the things that she has found. And this is Dr. Michelle Phelps. And she is looking, some of the tags are inequality, politics, race, Black Lives Matter, Matter and Policing. So 
So one of the things that she found when she asked about the relationship uh, between the police and their community, she uses this term legal estrangement. There are three primary mechanisms or roots of legal estrangement. Personal experiences of police, uh, police injustice, including racial profiling, procedural injustice, criminalization, and inappropriate officer use of force. The second one, indirect experience of those same injustices. These can be witnessed firsthand, communicated through the stories of a friend and family, or shared through traditional and social media. Third, these are three mechanisms that are indicative of the police being legally estranged from the communities that they are policing. Failure to receive full and equitable protection, including slow policing, police response, apathy from officers, and a sense that the police are failing to prevent crimes in your community. So certainly, the protests that we're seeing about George Floyd and uh, Rayshard Brooks are indicating to the society without any hesitation that there is a legal estrangement from the police and they are using social media to do so, to enact others so others can empathize and join the protest. Here is a little more data from her. Consistent with other surveys of race, class, subjugated communities, the overall measures of trust in police were quite low in our sample. On a standard suite of procedural justice indicators, most of our sample replied that police are only occasionally or sometimes when it comes to doing what is best. The police are occasional or sometimes. Compare these numbers to national measures of trust in the police and you can see the stark divergence. Nationally, 54% of Americans in 2018 reported that they had quite a lot or a great deal of confidence in the police, though notably this confidence in police was higher than for other state institutions like the presidency, Supreme Court, or Congress. Here I would interject because if you've had a traffic stop, you've, you've come in contact with the police. In our sample, only 15% could say the same about the police. And again, she's looking at high crime neighborhoods that are largely black. In contrast, white residents often came to understand the policing crisis in the context of the movement for black lives and the media attention that generated as well as through the stories and experience of their friends, families, and neighbors of color. For these interviews, these experiences produced a non-ethical dilemma, whether or not to call the police in response to concerns in the neighborhood. A number of white residents described a shift from seeing the police as there to help to potentially putting their friends and neighbors in harm way in harm's way. And here I have a, an anecdotal story. I was I had a student um who told me that when he an adult learner, when he was a made manager at one of these big box stores, um the, and it was in a white suburb, he for two or three nights in a row when he would leave out the back door, the police would be waiting in the back door and accuse him of robbing the store. He had his uniform on. He had the keys. Uh, each time they did it, they didn't write up an incident report. They simply harassed him. They just said it. So 
About the fourth time they did it, he went to work and he told some of the white boys that he manages. He was a manager at a store where most of, uh, he was in charge and the boss of several young white men. And they developed a plan. Every time he would go out the back door, they would go out with him. And then one of them would drive him home. So that was a good example of white people whose perception of the police as being there to help, to being in harm's way and harassing and harming their boss, because that could conceivably become a problem on their job. You think about that. The police arrest him. He can't get out of jail. He can't open the store the next morning. And so there are some things that um, some white people have been able to experience of recent note in their perception of who the police are and what they do. Let me give one anecdotal story from the uh, uh, the researchers from the researchers' research. Dee Dee, a black woman in her late twenties, told us that about a time her younger relative had gotten a bicycle from the police through one of their outreach programs. The interviewer asked if the experience would increase the trust or give her hope about police relations. So without reading all of it to you, somewhere in the research, she's trying to find out if the black people who live in the, who, who are subjugated to begin with, live in the social, uh, lower social economic standard, strata rather, and who have negative interactions with the police in general, if some incidents that would pop out to show the researchers that there are in fact white police officers who interact with black residents of these neighborhoods differently. So she's so having explained that, I'll read on. This is the 20 year old's response to the interviewer asking her, would this increase your trust in the police? I don't do that much because the bad outweighs the good. We see that one little good thing rarely but you will, you always hear in something. She, that's, this is how she's she's writing down exactly the words of the um, of the informant. But you always hear in something negative or bad, and it's just just not North Minneapolis police. It's just not Minnesota police. It's police wide. So the author's commentary here. So improving community trust through outreach and positive community interactions alone is really difficult. And it's important to note here that Didi was someone who was thoughtful and, and at times optimistic about the potential for major reforms or transformations in policing. So the interviews took place during a period of intense reform. The Minneapolis Police Department was one of the national initiatives for building community trust demonstration sites. If you just tuned in, we're talking about deadly force in a deadly pandemic. We are looking at the way the police can do better policing that's less antagonistic that will result in fewer deaths in custody and fewer uh, fewer uses of deadly force, all in the context of a of a national pandemic. Certainly people's emotional status, people's lockdown status, people's inability to earn money, all of these things are fueling uh, people, people's ability to de-escalate. This is where they got money from to do the research I just mentioned. So if you are interested in helping to reduce the 
the use of deadly force, the misuse of justice, an increase in the morbidity and mortality of African-American males in particular when they are in police custody. The National in Initiative for Building Community Trust or Justice is a project to improve relationships and increase trust between communities and the criminal justice system and advance the public and scholarly understandings of the issues contributing to those relationships. In September of 2014, the U.S. Department of Justice announced a three-year, $4.7 million grant to establish the project in collaboration with the Department of Justice. The National Initiative is coordinated by the National Network for Safe Communities at John Jay College of, Communal, John Jay College of Criminal Justice with partnerships from the Justice Collaboratory at Yale Law School and the Center for Policing Equity at John Jay College in UCLA, UCLA and the Urban uh, Institute. The National Initiative's work involves trust-building interventions with police departments and, and communities based on three pillars, enhancing procedural justice, reducing the impact of implicit bias, fostering recon reconciliation. I'm going to unpack a couple of those. Enhancing procedural justice is the way police interact with the public and how those interactions shape the public's view of the police. So when we take a look at the police killing of Rayshard Brooks, what do we see? What do we see? We see he's he is used, he is the victim of deadly force. There is no reason to use deadly force in his situation, most people agree. When he gets the taser away from one of them, he's running away, and it's also it's also not a gun. It's very simple. It is not a gun. So now I've explained um now I've explained some of the ways that you can work cooperatively with researchers. If you have your own nonprofit, you can apply for funding. Uh, Dr. Phelps was working with Black Black Lives Matter so that these incidents can be greatly reduced. So now I want to also take a look at how many deadly, um, how many police shootings are there in the United States annually. We began the show talking about Rayshard Brooks and he was shot in Atlanta at a Wendy's because he failed a sobriety test. <sighs> so there are several um, databases on the police shootings in the United States of America. Um, the one I'm, I'm going to take a look at, um, Statista.com, any of the references, resources that I use, uh, uh, the engineer Scotty Reed, he will put up some of the sources on Twitter. Also, you can send me a direct message and I will respond. If you are listening to me uh, through the Black Talk Radio Network and you can use um, you can use a couple of things like TuneIn, for instance. If you're listening to this podcast or you listen to some of the archive podcasts, you, you can also leave a comment on my site, Victims to Victorious, and you can also hit me up on Twitter at On Air Angel. So the police, this is called Statista Research Department, and we've got about 10 minutes to go, 
and we're taking a look at the fatal police shootings in the United States of America. Fatal is more of a layman's word. In public health, we use the word mortality. Mortality means death. Morbidity means sickness. So all gunshot injuries are a concern of public health. If you're wondering how we're tying this in, this is why we call the show Victims to Victorious, so that the victimization by bullets and the victimization by weaponry and the victimization by, by violence can be reduced. Because not only do people die, people have various morbidity factors, including PTSD. Many people who are shot uh, are diagnosed later with PTSD, not just people who've been to war. Here's the article in the statistical research. Sadly, the trend of police shootings in the United States seems to only be increasing. With a total of 429 civilians having been shot, 88 of whom were black, as of June 4, 2020. So this is very up-to-date data. In 2018, there were 966 fatal shootings. And in 2019, this figure increased to 1,004. Additionally, the rate of fatal police shootings among black Americans was higher than that of any other ethnicity standing at a 30 fatal shootings per million of the population as of June 2020. And at this website, or on this website, statista.com, you can actually see a, um, you can actually see a breakdown of the numbers and um, the way that the numbers are increasing. So I'm just going to give out that number again, 1,000 and four in 2019. And remember, when we look at historic data, it's going to be two or three years behind in general. But this site keeps a running count as well as showing you the archive count. So in 2017, there's a legend here. Um, in 2017, the color blue represents the number of white people shot the royal blue, the number of white people shot, 457 white people were shot by the police in 2017. In 2018, sorry, let me go back to black. In 2017, the number of black people shot was 223. And in 2019, the number of black people shot was 235. And as of this date, um, in 2020, there were 88 black people shot. And what's also interesting, I, I do want to take a look at the Latino numbers. In 2017, 179 Latino people were shot by the police. 2018, 148 Latino people were shot by the police. In 2019, 158 Latino people were shot by the police. And as of this date, uh, the publication of this was June 4th, 57 Latino people. Now, there are more white people shot, but you have to take that over the, over the denominator of the population. So there are far more white people, and therefore more white people get shot. But the percentage or the proportion is what we're objecting to. 
because African American, the African American population and the Latino population are very small. And if you were, you could also do this. You could take the number of black men, mostly African American males, is the assumption. The number of blacks shot in 2019 is 235. Okay. The number of Latinos shot in 2019 is 158, and the number in 2020 is 57. So once you start adding up these numbers of black and brown, you're going to get an, uh, an either what we call an overrepresentation. So there are fewer Hispanic people than black, there are fewer black people than white, but the proportion is off. So that's what the proportion is off. This is a very sobering statistic. Again, if you want to take a look at this in your uh, listening to me on the computer, go to statista.com. You can actually, actually type in shot to death by the police. And before we leave this article, I just want to remind people of the horrific number. There were 1,004 people who were fatally killed by the police in 2019. That's the total of all races. And then I also want to mention that there is actually account for people whose races are unknown. So what does that mean? Uh, races unknown. A person could be black, a person could be white, a person could be Latino. There are a couple of reasons this could be a statistical artifact. In other words, the coroner may not report race. Race could have been left out. Race was not apparent, for instance. Um, Sometimes, yeah, race was not apparent. So especially it may be hard to tell race if someone is disfigured, for instance. So those are those could be a combination of things, the uh, lack of race information on the arrest documents, the inability to determine race by a physical exam. So we do have about five more minutes to go. My name is Angel Fall, and what we're doing today on uh, this show is called Deadly Force in a Deadly Pandemic. We are taking a look at the police shootings that have occurred, oh, that have been occurring all along. The use of deadly force, the um, fact that the police have killed for the last two years approximately 1,000 people. They have shot and killed them, with black and brown people being um, overrepresented in the population. I've asked you if you're listening to find. Uh, a way to get your police department uh, reformed. Minneapolis is looking at uh, the way the police interact with black neighborhoods, especially black neighborhoods where there is high crime. So those are some of the things. There's funding available through the Department of Justice for people to study how the police can be reformed. There are opportunities. There are opportunities for um, you as an advocate, you as a community member, to participate in the research. You might not think that that would mean something, but in the case of Dr. Phelps, for instance, she actually is interviewing the people in these neighborhoods where the police have done a disproportionate amount of the shootings and the disproportionate amount of the um, arresting so that 
so that she can understand from the point of view of the people who live there. And this is a transition for research. For many years, the ethnographic observations were totally allowable without a real interaction or description from the people who were most, most at risk. So we began the show by talking about Rayshard Brooks, and I just want to take a look at the numbers of coronavirus cases in Atlanta. Um, that's where he was killed. Sorry, he was killed in Atlanta, but we're taking a look at Georgia. So right now, Georgia has 57,681 confirmed coronavirus cases. The, uh, the state of Georgia is not reporting how many people have recovered, but for the listener's sake, most people who test positive for corona do in fact recover. Corona becomes more lethal when you have certain comorbidities or you are an elderly person. So that the uh, state of Georgia has 57,681 confirmed cases. The deaths in Georgia to date are 2,451. In the United States, there are 2.17 million confirmed cases. 677,000 people have recovered. That means you tested positive, you were seen at the, you were seen, and you are now a healthy person. And of course, now you have uh, some, you're producing antigens. We can talk more about that. And finally, in the United States, there have been 11,000, I'm sorry, 118,000 deaths from the coronavirus. Around the world, 7.82 million people have been infected with corona and so far 432,000 deaths have been reported. So we talked today about deadly force in a deadly pandemic, lockdown, illness, anxiety, lack of the ability to social distance, lack of money. These are all part of a formula uh, for a society that's on the edge. I want to thank you for listening to Victims to Victorious. The title of today's show has been Deadly Force and the Deadly Pandemic. I want to thank the listeners who support the Black Talk Media Project. Uh, you can look for us on Facebook as well. I'm Angel Fall, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>